This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut, Babette. We would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting at Radio 3CR, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. A banner outside COP26 said, Stop financing our destruction. And many vulnerable countries walked away from the conference with their trust very much shaken. Loss and damage funding, as we heard last week, hasn't been really secured. And the full $100 billion per year for adaptation, which has been promised for 10 years, still needs to be a lot more. Here's Nancy Tembo. She's the Minister of Forestry for the Parliament of Malawi, and she explains why, especially women, can't wait any longer for some of this adaptation funding to come through to them. We need simplified procedures to facilitate direct access to climate finance for grassroots. The bureaucracy is it's painful. <laughs> <laughs> and so cumbersome. And it does not help us. Mm-hmm. Uh, low-income countries and Africa, Malawi, we need to address climate change urgently. Women and girls cannot wait. I am a member of parliament and we have uh, local development committees. The leaders and the most passionate in these groupings are women. We now are doing uh, forestry restoration, landscape restoration. The champions are women. Why women? because they bear the blunt of the climate change impacts. You address restoration of the forest, of the landscape, it means ensure that our river will run again next year. They have seen it happen. We have programs in in districts where the watershed was completely depleted and the water the river had run dry, but because of leadership of women, we have planted trees and the rivers have started to flow again. And so women are leading because they are the most impacted. What they need is support. You know, it's a vicious circle for us because uh, we use biomass, woody biomass, as our domestic source of cooking energy. So women have to prepare food for their families and there's no electricity. So what do they do? They go back to the forest and that leads to cutting of trees, production of charcoal because they're desperate. They have to produce They have to feed their families. They have to cook for their families. And so as governments and as institutions that can facilitate 
alternative sources of energy. We need to ensure that this is done as a matter of agency. Because otherwise, a woman is not going to let their child die because they can't cook for them, because they're trying to protect a tree. So we, as governments, we are trying our best as the government of Malawi. But we need support and from the uh, financing agencies. We need support in order to be able to provide alternative sources of energy in the form of solar, uh, whether it's briquettes, so that uh, women protect the forests, the forests that they are championing to grow, to restore. Meanwhile, the finance sector was central to this COP meeting. Here's Rishi Sunak. He's the UK Chancellor of the Exchequer. Over the next five years, we will deliver a total of $500 billion of investment to the countries that need it most. And we can do more today. I can announce that the United Kingdom will commit £100 million to the Task Force on Access to Climate Finance, making it quicker and easier for developing countries to access the finance they need. And we're supporting a new capital markets mechanism which will issue billions of new green bonds here in the UK to fund renewable energy in developing countries. Two tangible, practical examples of how we're delivering our promise of $100 billion. But public investment alone isn't enough. Our second action is to mobilise private finance. Let me pay an enormous tribute to Mark Carney for his leadership, leadership that is delivering results. The Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero has now brought together financial organisations with assets worth over $130 trillion of capital to be deployed. This is a historic wall of capital for the net zero transition around the world. What matters now is action, to invest that capital in our low carbon future. To do that, investors need to have as much clarity and confidence in the climate impact of their investments as they do in the traditional financial metrics of profit and loss. So our third action is to rewire the entire global financial system for net zero. Better and more consistent climate data, sovereign green bonds, mandatory sustainability disclosures, proper climate risk surveillance, stronger global reporting standards, all things we need to deliver. And I'm proud that the UK is playing its part. We've already made it mandatory for businesses to disclose climate-related financial information, with 35 other countries signing up to do the same. Today, I'm announcing that the UK will go further and become the first ever net zero aligned financial centre. This means we are going to move towards making it mandatory for firms to publish a clear, deliverable plan setting out how they will decarbonise and transition to net zero with an independent task force to define what's required. Wow, rewiring the entire global financial system for net zero it's a massive promise, isn't it? And the net in net zero is already a weasel word. It suggests a safety net full of offsets and saving face to me. I think the climate system with its jet stream slowing and its 
permafrost melting will be laughing at these puny promises. My opinion about finance, having listened to hours of COP26 inside and on the street, is that the billions and trillions will be no use unless we stop extracting coal, oil, gas and trees. The fossil fuel subsidies were not outlawed by COP26 and governments exporting fossil fuels as long as there's a market like Australia are not treated as climate criminals yet. The activists are hurling themselves at the financial institutions that support Adani, for example. They staged a cricket match last week in the foyer to tell the State Bank of India that it was not cricket to invest in Adani. And this week, two people scaled the palm trees outside Black Rock's office at Chifley Square in Sydney to send a message to Larry Fink. But the financial system, as far as I can see, is rigged against us. So here's a comment to back me up from Noam Chomsky and a happy birthday to him on his 94th birthday this week. He was speaking at the Haymarket Bookshop in New York. If you, if you look back at the COP26 discussions, which are kind of interesting on the inside, not the outside, there was a lot of talk about how we now have $136 trillion available in the hands of the major financial institutions. And since they are all wonderful people dedicated to the service of the human species, they will use that $130 trillion to ensure that everything works out. The U.S. Representative John Kerry was ecstatic at the fact that now we have the market working for us. The corporate sector is now fully committed to taking care of the whole problem of the financial crisis. Well, now put yourself back in the position of the CEO of uh, J.P. Morgan Chase or Larry Fink and BlackRock and say, suppose I try to do what I'm talking about. Suppose I try to put money into saving the environment instead of making more profit tomorrow. What happens? Tomorrow I'm kicked out by the board of directors and somebody else comes in who's going to be doing exactly this. So the rational thing for me to do is stay on, destroy the world, because I'm a nice guy and I'll do it a little better than the other guy. But there's an institutional structure that says the position is going to be taken by someone who will be after short-term profit and uh, will destroy the world. That's a part of the institutional framework. We accept that framework. It's rational behavior to commit species suicide. I'm from the Lakota Nation, and uh, people are listening in America to you, so talk back, Australia, to the Earth. Peace with Earth. Thank you. The Okusen Ghost Horse Community Radio is your love. Our guest now is Fiona Reynolds. She was at COP26 and she talks trillions. She was voted by the Australian Financial Review into their top 100 women of influence. And she is the CEO of UNPRI, which stands for Principles of Responsible Investment. She just returned from London 
and I met her at a webinar from the Search Foundation about COP26. So welcome, Fiona, to the Climate Action Show. Could you tell us about the recent UN Climate Conference in Glasgow and how you were able to influence events? Well, sure, and thanks for having me, Vivian. Um, maybe about COP26, starting with some of the headlines. You know, I, thinking back to COP26, it's just been, I know there was lots of discussion about was it successful or was it not successful? And when I think back um, to Glasgow, I also think back to the Paris Agreement. And when the Paris Agreement was signed in 2015, at that stage, we were on track for global heating of around 3.4 degrees. And going into Glasgow, we were talking about being on track for 2.7 degrees. And then post COP26, we're talking about 2.4 degrees with some modelling say, saying that if all the commitments were realised that we get to 2 degrees. Of course, 1.5 degrees is where we need to be. And I would say that after Glasgow that 1.5 degrees is still alive but with a very weak pulse. So I think we have lowered the risk of catastrophic climate change but we haven't bent the curve enough. So there now must just be a real acceleration and a decade of action. And countries that haven't committed sufficiently to 2030, and I include Australia in that, really must have a lot of pressure on them to up their game. In terms of what we were doing at COP26, what the PRI was doing, so we work with the investment community. And I think that the private sector and the financial community had a very large role to play at COP26, more than it has in the past. One of the key things that was happening at COP26, I think, was an understanding from governments that they alone are not going to fund the climate transition that we need, that private finance, private business is actually needed in a, on a large scale. So one of the things that was put together that was put together for COP26 was called the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero or GFANS. And it received a lot of attention during COP26. So it's 450 organisations, financial organisations, who have committed to net zero themselves. And some of those initiatives that we're involved in, like the Net Zero Asset Owner Alliance, so big pension funds and insurance companies from around the world, have committed to 2025 um, targets. So these are the this is the way that we were trying to influence. We've been trying to influence what the private sector does and how they step up, how business changes. As investors, we're shareholders of large companies. How do we change business? How do we make them commit to net, net zero? And what, uh, what is the finance sector itself doing? Well, I'm glad to, to hear that they're more central. I mean, they, this was a conference that mentioned coal for the first time after all these years. So I'm really glad that those companies are more on centre stage, but I'm hoping they realise that business as usual is over. And I, I'm still reporting on climate activists who are locking onto coal trains and challenging the State Bank of India, for example, and Black Rock, Rock for financing Adani I'd like you to explain to listeners how the financial industry can stop investing in more delay and uh, what I would call ecocidal short-term profits. 
Well, I think the science and the evidence and the alarm bells are clear. The IPCC, the IEA and other leading reports have equivocally stated that fossil fuel phase out is inevitable and must be equitable and that there should be no, no investment in new fossil fuel supply projects and no further final investment decisions for new unabated um, coal plants. So the investment community, what it needs to be doing, I think, of, I think first of all, we need to understand that this is a transition. So yeah. it's not that there's not gonna be an investment in, in fossil fuels, but we don't need new investment in coal. We don't need new investment in um, oil, for example. We, we need to see that investors start to transition away. So what we have, for example, is we have a big engagement as major shareholders with uh, the largest emitting companies in the world. So we have something that's called Climate Action 100 Plus. 50 investors, five, they, sorry, 500 investors, they represent 50 trillion US dollars in assets under management. Working with those 100 largest emitters, many of them, um, you know, energy companies, not just, not main, not just, but many of them energy companies about the transition away from fossil fuels. So what is the plan? How are they getting there? What is their investments in alternative energy solutions? What's the timeline? What's the discussions at the board? So they're the things that we're focusing on because as long-term investors, we understand that these changes are going to happen over the next few decades and on to 2050. And we don't want to end up with investments that basically are useless investments over time. And so you see the investment community starting to pull back on these investments, but also you're starting to see banks who are saying, well, we're not going to fund new investment in coal, coal infrastructure. And we see insurance companies who say, well, we're not going to insure companies for new fossil fuel projects. And all of this means that um, there's pressure put on companies to bring about that change. And of course, we also need to see investors putting investments into um, new tech, the new technologies and the new energy technologies that we need for the future. There's a long way to go, Vivian, don't get me yeah. wrong, an incredibly long way to go. But I do think after many, many years that the private sector is now moving, and I would argue that in many cases is moving faster than the than many governments around the world. Well, that's good. I haven't heard that before, but um, I sort of have heard it. But it's the world of well, that I'm in, and I think many listeners are in, we, we don't really understand the financial system. It's, and certainly it's hard to trust it you know, seeing as that we're so much on the brink of an abyss right now. And Australia was named the colossal fossil in Glasgow. So coming back, you've just come back to Australia. I think if you read the daily papers here, you're going to be dismayed and see the local television and the level of debate here. It's very hard to cut through there. Um, I think colossal fossil sounds a bit soft. I'd be preferring to call us climate criminals because we've said, oh, we're just going to continue exporting coal and gas um, as long as there's a market for it. And I want, I want to know, do you think our lack of a detailed policy in Australia to prevent more climate disruption will be kind of a, a sovereign risk 
your investors and I wonder how we are viewed overseas. Well I absolutely do. So Australia's low ambition stance on climate with no change in the 2030 National Emissions Reduction Plan and its active role in seeking to water down the IPCC reports does not really inspire investor confidence. And you know, as well as that, there's the decade-long stance on the role of coal in international energy generation. And it's been increasingly noted by international investors, by other countries. It's placing Australia's um, long-term sovereign risk profile under the spotlight. It's meaning that there is also an in bit likely an increasing co cost of capital for Australians. And I think this is why, in part, there was the 2050 announcement. But it's a bit shocking when you get into Australia's 2050 announcement to see that post-2050, Australia still thinks that it's going to be exporting coal. You know, Australia is the most emissions-intensive OECD economy and is highly exposed to decarbonisation direction in the global supply chain. And globally, green investment opportunities and credible climate risk management are really paving the way for greater net zero investments in global markets. And unless Australia moves to match comparable global ambition, and mitigate climate risks in its economy with near-term policy actions and signals, it'll ultimately, we will find ourselves just less competitive in global markets. And as you said, you know, Australia found itself to be the colossal fossil. So at COP26, so each day at COP26, someone's named the fossil of the day. And it could be a company, it could be a country, it might be um, an investor, and then at the end of the period, someone is named the colossal fossil, and that was the country of Australia. And I don't think being there that um, really, you know, I think a lot was made probably back in Australia about, oh, we're finally making a 2050 announcement. And, you know, <laughs> great, fantastic. But when you got into the detail of it, it, was, it just wasn't met with any credibility on the international world stage. When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. But with a lover, I could hold my head back, really loud, really loud. conference there were also a large number of fossil fuel lobbyists including inside national delegations and many people were horrified by that especially as so many other people felt locked out of the conference so many other voices of people impacted um, and I'd like to, you to explain to us their grip on political parties and the continued flow of massive subsidies to these companies. Yeah well it really is quite shocking I mean I don't have a problem with fossil fuel companies being at COP26 if they're there to play a positive role and they're there to learn and understand and to be thinking about the future. But when they're there to try to lobby against action, then, you know, I, I, we've got to ask, why are they there? Why are they allowed in the door? And to me, they shouldn't be allowed because we've had too much of the fossil fuel companies winning the day and 
delaying action for their own purposes. And that has got, that, that's really got to stop. And, you know, um, all of these fossil fuel subsidies that are, that are paid by us as taxpayers to these companies needs to stop as well. What we need to see is money. If we're going to have taxpayers' money going anywhere, it needs to be going into, you know, the future, looking at looking at the future and the investments of the future, not in the investments of the past. And that's what this is. It doesn't mean they're going to, you know, we're going to turn off electricity that is powered by coal by gas, etc. tomorrow, but we need to have strong plans for it to happen. And we don't need to see more <clears> of <throat> our taxpayers' money going into keeping these industries alive rather than in thinking about how we transition out of them over a long period and thinking about how we do that in a way that is equitable for also the communities that rely heavily on mining, on fossil fuels at the moment. We need to make sure that this is a just and equitable transition for oh, those yeah. people as well. And that is where our money should be going, yeah. not into oh. subsidies. Oh, I know, but I'm so tired of talking about it. I've, we've, we've done programs on this over 10 years, you know, and it just doesn't seem to come up with, um, you know, guaranteed plans. It's very piecemeal. And I think the pandemic has shaken many people some have realised that government can actually do a lot. Government, government can be quite draconian if it wants to be and for the good. But in my opinion, um, we can see capitalism here in the, the COVID pandemic, the you know, pathological capacity to focus on short-term profits, for example, not rolling out a people's vaccine, you know, not creating a global vaccination programme. And um, now it's come back to bite us as more variants, more mutations appear and wreck more lives. So I, thought, I think a lot of climate activists were looking at that and thinking, oh, all our hope for, you know, like a Green New Deal and putting things on a wartime footing by government isn't going to happen. And I feel that um, government seems to be leaving business to get on with the climate response. And I wonder, do you see investors taking any action to bend the curve of emissions to to actually themselves create um, an organization that will bend the curve of emissions because it's getting so late in history for this um, it certainly is and I couldn't agree with you more in terms of look what the pandemic showed us in terms of how much money what can be deployed so quickly if there is really the will to do so, and we should be seeing the same on the climate side. I would also say, though, that I think the pandemic showed anyone who um, was sceptical that how interconnected things are. So it is not possible to have a healthy economy if you do not have a healthy planet and a healthy people. And, you know, the, the pandemic just laid that very bare to us about what how all of these things come together and you have to you can have profit there is nothing wrong with the private sector making profit but it can't be at the expense of the planet and people and that is what we try to work on you know very much at, at the PRI and I do think that investors are having a big a much bigger impact 
in the economy, long-term investors, about changing the way business invests. Business did not come to this themselves. Business have been pressured by their shareholders. And I think that's an important um, point to make. And they're saying to business, to the companies that they own, no, we want you to focus on the long term. We don't want you to just focus on the short term because otherwise you won't make money for us over the long term. And that, you know, that's our expectation. I do feel though, Vivian, as you were saying, I really do get, am getting a bit worried that now everything is being pushed onto the private sector and that governments are sort of walking away a bit. And the private sector can only act if governments make the right plans and governments set the direction. So, for example, you need to know as investors that, uh, that you know, a country is having plans so that you can invest with certainty. So, you know, I've just moved back from the UK, but in the UK, for example, we have a, um, you know, a date to phase out coal. There's a date to phase out the internal combustion engine. Um, there's dates for what, what's happening with new building codes and how we change the heating systems in people's homes. All of these things are happening. And so that means as a very large investors, you can invest with some certainty, which you can't do in Australia at the moment. Yeah. Well, look, many people are calling for community-owned energy. And I know plenty of people, because we've delayed so long to get this renewable energy penetration, you know, it's been delay, delay, delay. So government-owned, um, you know, renewable energy. And I know plenty who would invest, for example, in green bonds if they were accelerating the building of wind, solar and storage projects, not just for 100% renewable energy, but for 700% renewable energy. And is that happening anywhere in the world? You know, where the government takes over, okay, we're going to turbocharge this. Well, green bonds are growing at a fast rate. That's, that's, a good, that, that's a good thing. I think there's growing momentum behind publicly and community-owned energy, clean energy across Australia. I mean, for example, the Queensland State Government recently established CleanCo, you know, a publicly-owned energy company. In, and, um, you know, that was established in 2008 to drive down energy prices, to create jobs, reduce emissions in the energy sector. And CleanCo holds predominantly renewable energy assets, including hydropower, and is building new wind farms to help transition the national energy market towards a net zero emissions future. And I think that Australian consumers are also preferencing energy providers who have a clean reputation and a support local communities. In late November, Shell announced that it would acquire the popular renewable energy provider PowerShop Australia, but PowerShop customers were largely unhappy, uh, claiming the acquisition was an attempt to greenwash by Shell, one of the, you know, what people saw as one of the world's worst climate commuters, and many disgruntled customers quickly switched to community-owned um, power, uh, community-owned providers like Cooperative Power and Anova Community Energy. So I do think that um, we're seeing more and more that people are going to be voting with their feet about the energy supply that they want and where and where it comes from. And ultimately, we need to see more of that um, happening in Australia and we need to see more and more people voting along the lines about 
what their MPs are, are doing on climate change. They need to be held to account far more. But I do think people get quite confused. It is a, a, about climate change. They support climate change, but the detail, they don't under necessarily understand all the detail. No, that's right. And, and it has been very confused in Australia and very politicised and, you know, it, it's, it's a bit yeah. of a mess. But I think that those community groups you've mentioned, those community-owned, but what about government-owned, you know, owning, they own the grid. I mean, what about owning the, the power? you know, popularly owned power? Well, I think the problem at the moment is when the Australian government talks about using our money to own things, they're talking about building new, cap new coal plants and they're talking about, um, you know, expanding gas and that's not what, we're, not what we want to happen. So th this is where I think that the private sector has to really step up and play more more of a role in understanding what's going to make money in the future and that there's a risk from them holding assets uh, like uh, coal coal production etc many many investors um, have decided that that's not what they want to do anymore they want to get out of those investments because they see that in eventually they'll have investments that are stranded because regulation and legislation around the world is changing and it will mean that they won't, those things won't be able to dug it, be dug out of the ground. So if you hold them, you won't be able to use them. I would like to lift the discussion just to finish, Fiona. You mentioned that you had been involved with the Belt and Road Project and China is a big subject for us here. And I'd like to know how this can contribute to climate adaptation and lowering emissions, the um, Belt and Road Project. Yeah. So obviously China is rolling out its big Belt and Road Initiative across the globe. Um, in, you know, there's, it's more, they're promoting economic development and each in inter-regional connectivity in over 15 countries. And it's arguably the largest investment project in generations globally. And it spans transport, energy, industrial capacity, technical transfers and capacity building and telecommunications infrastructure. And it has been controversial for some countries and for some people. But from my perspective, since it's happening, we need to make sure that the Belt and Road is done in a way that um, is sustainable. So we've been involved in the Belt and Road, greening the Belt and Road, uh, Belt and Road Initiative. It's a sort of a joint project that works um, between the UK and China and developing sustainable principles and trying to make everything that's built as green as possible. You know, I think China gets a very bad rap, but China is also doing a lot when it comes to climate change in terms of uh, investment in renewables and investments in technology and investment in solutions. Uh, China said that it's not going to fund any more coal outside of China. Now, of course, we needed to see it not fund any more coal power plants in China as well, but it's a big step to say we're, not, we're going to stop funding internationally. Big yeah. first step. And what are some of the other greening things that you, you hope them to implement? Well, I, think, I hope that with um, all of the infrastructure projects that uh, China is building in many countries, that they're done in a sustainable way, taking into consideration the environment 
And that's really important when you're building new construction and new projects overseas. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Fiona. Um, um, I would like to interview you again when you're more settled back in Australia, but um, we, we have to finish there. But it has been most interesting talking to you. There's so much more to, to learn, I think, and I think it is we are on a learning curve, you know, the listeners and the community, because we vote in terms of what we know. And if we don't really know the bigger picture we, we, we can't you know can't choose the right governments to help us get there exactly the other thing that i would encourage people to do vivian just in um wrapping up and i would really encourage people to contact their superannuation funds and ask them what they're doing about climate change how they're acting um how they're how they're interacting with business and really say to them that they expect as members that they're taking action on climate change and that can all have uh, by just you know doing something small like that that can all have a big impact are they starting to uh, are they are they parts of bigger organizations you know financial industry organizations to insist on these principles of responsible investment yes so a number of superannuation funds are members of the PRI and so they do do they are taking action around climate change some of them could do I would argue could do more and do it faster but a number of set ambitious net zero by 2050 targets so that means that they you know really need to change the way that they invest and again put capital into solutions but the more and more their members say this is our expectation and this is what we want the better Yes. We've talked in general terms, but who are your heroes in this field? The ones who are, you know, you really would advise people to invest in the companies that are doing well and also the standouts, the ones who are just going to greenwash themselves and continue to do the wrong thing. Oh, okay. Well, I, I think my heroes in this space are not necessarily the financial institutions, not always <laughs> financial institutions. It's actually a lot of the activists and organisations who put pressure on them to put pressure on them to act. Look, I think in, a, in Australia, the ones that I would say in terms of superannuation funds that I think are doing the most on climate, and I'm not saying this is an exhaustive list, but I think Hester Super Fund, uh, Aware Super, and um, Vision Super are all doing a lot in the climate space, more more than many more than many others. And what about the laggards? Is too soft a term. The ones who are really holding out and delaying. What about them? That's a difficult question to answer. I think that everyone can do. I think everyone can do more. Definitely, and I think the other thing is putting pressure on some of the banks that people are in, that people are have investments in, but also that you bank with. And I think we have to be asking more questions of those sorts of institutions that we're all involved in. Thank you very much. We've been talking to Fiona Reynolds, who's the CEO of a group called UNPRI, standing for Principles of Responsible Investment. Thank you, Fiona. Thanks, Vivian. Good to talk to you. And now here's a song translated into Indonesian by our next speaker, Melissa Kawara, who you will hear later speaking from Jakarta. It's sung by uh, someone from Extinction Rebellion who lives in Bandung, and it's called Power to the People. These are the words. The people got the power. Tell me, can you feel it? Getting stronger by the hour. Power, people, people, power. 
Nusa Kawara is from Extinction Rebellion in Indonesia. She spoke at the Socialism 2021 conference in December, and I'm very happy to bring her fresh voice to you. She has a degree from the London School of Economics and Cambridge and is skilled in business development and green initiatives. So welcome, Melissa. I'd like you to start by telling us about the Mount Simeru volcanic eruption that's recently in Java. It just highlights everything, right? How unprepared we are with um, disasters. And it's honestly, it tops up a whole year's worth of disasters. It's quite a lot to take, to be honest. Uh, in Indonesia, um, outside of the Samaru, uh, we've had 7.8 million refugees already this year alone from disasters. Um, I haven't had the time to really absorb what's happened in Zemeru and see what the damages are and how I can personally help yet. Um, so I really can't talk much about the details of the Zemeru. Um, but really, it just it just highlights how unprepared Indonesia is for disasters and the climate crisis is just going to exacerbate everything. So, yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, this episode of the Climate Action Show is about finance and you described Indonesian workers like food vendors and self-sufficient farmers embodying a way of life that is a real challenge to capitalism's focus on growth in the formal economy. Could you, um, how do you see this being, this sort of conflict being played out in Indonesia? Yeah, um, countries generally only talk about growing the formal economy, right? These are the economy that is counted in GDP. So they're self-reported and they are taxable. In places like Indonesia, more than 60% of the workers actually work in the informal sector, sector. So these are the ones that you've mentioned. And this informal sector has no, um, how do I say it? There's no benefits or there's no policies that regulates and uh, grow and able to give any welfare towards this, these informal sectors. So often what happens is the government would make policies and investment decisions only to grow the formal sector, which a lot of the times actually kills the economy of the informal sector because of land grabs and destruction of the areas and whatnot. Um, so it's really a, a matter of injustice uh, for countries to only develop one sector of the economy. And we know that the sector, of the, uh, the formal sector is very unfair, um, that the division of the GDP itself is really unfair. In the case of Indonesia, only 15% of the GDP actually goes to the labor as wages. The rest goes to um, the capital owners as profits and as interest and whatnot. So it's, um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's a very incomplete measure of the economy, the GDP, that is destructive. Yeah. Well, one of the agreements at COP26 was to preserve forests, and there'd be a lot of those informal workers living in forests and from the product, product of forests, but there's, that's where the land grabs are for plantations, aren't they? And We've done stories before on the draining of peatlands and the uncontrollable fires in the dried out peat. And the, I think that was at the Paris COP that year, 2015, absolutely huge fires you had there. And the climate impact of all of that, how would you finance some sort of giving back of the land and paying Indigenous people to preserve those forests? It's funny when people always say like, oh, how could we pay to preserve forests? 
Because preserving forests should be free. <laughs> preserving forests involves literally giving the rights to the indigenous communities over their own land. The finances can then ensure that the people have the infrastructure to be able to provide basic need living for themselves, that they don't need to succumb to the infrastructure projects. They don't need to succumb to the investments of the um, big corporation investments in uh, say like palm oil plantations because what you do see a lot is a lot of smallholder farmers who are who had welfare before you know, they, they were able to grow their own food they were able to get clean water um, are now struggling because their land had been partially destroyed by these big scaled investments that they feel that they have no choice but to enter the formal market so they have no choice but to become palm oil palm oil producers as soon as um, our president signed the agreement, our Ministry of Environment actually wrote a tweet um, that said that uh, the big scale development under Jokowi's era cannot stop for emissions and deforestation. Mm-hmm. So uh, even internally, it's already agreed that we're not going to follow up with the <laughs> we're not going to follow up with the agreement. Um, but it's, it's just really sad that it just shows that the Ministry of Environment doesn't really understand basic science <laughs> behind emissions and deforestation yes. and, and coming from a person who is supposed to be protecting the environment, mm. I think really shows where Indonesian government stands for. Well, you're living in Jakarta, which is one of those cities that's going to be very affected by sea level rise. I mean, we're living in a country that's burning up every couple of years now. You just wonder when the writing on the wall is going to actually penetrate to these people's minds. In the end of the day, the people who know about the planetary boundaries the most are the people who live there. So it's, it's a must to be able to include them in these decision making. And, it's, and it doesn't make any sense anyway for an external investors to come in and just like, okay, I want the entire island. Like, okay, well, there are people <laughs> living in the island. How do you, like, how do you cope with that? And funnily enough, it's actually in our constitution in Indonesia. Um, one of the constitution lines actually reads that all the riches from the earth can be extracted, but managed in a familial way of business and fully used for the benefit of the people. So benefit of the Indonesian people. So it's funny because they have now letting all these external um, foreign investors come in and take what, like a 40% margin. I have no idea what the profit margin is, but it must be big. Um, and and it's, it's just against the constitution. The very way of doing business is against the constitution. Um, so yeah, as I'm saying, like these planetary boundaries, it's so easily managed if you have the proper policies. So for example, one of the planetary boundary obviously is the, is the water extraction, right? Um, with the water extraction, why don't we just make it into a rule where everyone has to do some sort of rainwater harvesting to fulfill their needs for um, their water? Or they have like, um, or even if it's already connected to a water meter, okay, we'll just cap the water meter. Like it's, it's not even hard. It's, it just takes the will. Right? You said the role of government is not to be an extension of corporations. Well, our government, I think, is very dependent on corporations for political power. And I want to know how is Extinction Rebellion taking on these climate criminals in Indonesia? And who are the climate criminals <laughs> in your mind? <laughs> well, it is that, right? The extension of <laughs> private corporations that are represented in the government now. 
Um, I think I mentioned this in the in the conference as well. 55% of the House of Parliament people are business owners. And 16 out of 30 of the ministries now, the ministers now are mine owners. So um, they are very much represented in the government as opposed to the government working for the corporations. They are one entity at yeah. this point. Um, Extinction Rebellion in Indonesia functions a little bit different from the other XRs around the world, I suppose, or at least in the global north, um, because we don't want mass arrests here. Uh, it's very dangerous to be arrested in Indonesia. Um, and the knowledge level and the awareness level of, of, um, of the climate crisis is still very low here. Um, so we do try to connect and at the same time, we are already the victims of the climate crisis, as well as the destruction of ecosystem that is causing the climate crisis. So it's a little bit different. I think the climate crisis and the economical injustice can be solved in one go, only if the government decides to actually work for its people rather than corporations. Instead of investing in the private sector, growing the amount of money that is circulating in the formal GDP that is counted, what government should stand for is how to lower and minimize the need for money for people to just live by providing infrastructures, by providing energy sovereignty, food sovereignty, water sovereignty, things that allows the people to be able to live renewably every year without the need of money. So instead of having an entire education system that provides them with skill sets to get jobs, why not actually provide information skill sets for them to be able to fend for themselves, to be able to grow their own food, to be able to build their own energy um, power plants and whatnot in their own villages and the communities. Why not build on communities and allow these communities to actually flourish and thrive themselves as opposed to, again, <laughs> providing the private sector with jobs, 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 and then the communities to have to buy food that is provided by them anyway. And, um, and the entire dependency system and vicious cycle continues. So we need to break from that. And only when we can break from that will we achieve true freedom. Great. And do you see groups or parts of the government that are open to these ideas? Because we are in a dire emergency. Yeah. Um, the thing is, a lot of them, small-scale uh, local governments, are looking into these uh, there's projects in Indonesia called Kampung Iklim, uh, which means the climate villages, where they actually set up what would a self-sufficient village look like. They would have their own energy supply. They would have their own herb garden. They will have their own food uh, composting system and whatnot. They already have these uh, pilot projects, uh, so to speak. But what's happening is these are not given fundings. These are not given policies. These are not giving incentives. Because, of course, it, as the GDP-seeking system, the self-sufficiency will destroy GDP. Because, I mean, the whole concept of renewable is that you pay for it once, and then the next year and the next year, it gives no monetary value. So sovereignty is the exact opposite of GDP, seek a growth-seeking GDP. And sovereignty is, ironically, this, the solution, the easiest solution for the climate crisis, because... Everything that is more decentralized, everything that is renewable is what we need. <laughs> and do you have a theory how this might work in a country that isn't so dependent on the informal economy as you've described it? I mean, we don't have many subsistence farmers in Australia. It's bigger, very big properties and then industrial ag agriculture. 
the government can provide systems that lowers the need for money. And that's the whole point. It lowers the need for money for basic needs that ensures that nobody will ever go hungry, even if they don't have a job. Nobody will ever be cold, even if they don't have a job. So sovereignty in terms of food sovereignty, energy sovereignty, water sovereignty, which is also how you fight against this dependency of the system, Mm -hmm. right? Become sovereign, you don't need this economy that is always growing and always needing money. The key is still government policy in the end of the day, because we live in a, we live in a world where governments make the rules. Right? Um, so yeah, I think the, the key is government policy. Uh, the government policy will never be able to imply these things if the people in power making the decisions are the industry extractive owners so, and the extractive industry owners. So we need to system change fully. Growing up, I've seen a lot of protests in Indonesia and, um, a lot of the protests had looked angry in the mm. in TV. Like I only saw it on TV. I never went on the streets before. Um, and because of that, even like growing up, even now, I still see a lot of my peers are saying like, oh, who? Oh, they're just angry mob. They're being paid. They're, mm. um, and that stigma has stuck for so long. You said you saw that on TV, and that's a stereotype here too. The angry mob, Extinction Rebellion here, seems to get these very theatrical presentations and the media love it they go for it they had one young woman and she said she didn't she I interviewed her and she said she didn't feel she could actually have children because of the future that we're creating and they burned a pram you know baby's pram in front of the Australian parliament and that burning pram just got so much media so it was that kind of lateral thinking that unleashed something i don't know what the media like is like in indonesia but every time we do a strike that is very good photo op we we would generally make it up in the news and then the prints and whatnot but there's also so much control over the media uh with the industries that the the exposure towards these i guess is somewhat limited and um indonesia is one of those places where we have so many information going on and we have one of the most active social media users in the world and there's just so much information dump that it's difficult to retain memories. <laughs> and like, um, but you're right. Like it, it just needs more consistent protests this way to yeah. remind people that this is still happening. I yeah. think this is yeah, homework for all of us. Thank you so much, Melissa. You've given me a lot of your time and uh, good wishes to you for the ongoing work of, that you're doing there. Hey you mob, this virus is hanging around far too long, don't you reckon? Uncle Jack Charles here, and I for one would love to be back with community. This just isn't possible without vaccinating our community. You can contact your local ACCO and they can give you the information you need to book you an appointment so you're on your way. Together we can do better. Community, unity, immunity. Hashtag Vaxed and Proud. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Thank you for listening tonight to the Climate Action Show. This is our last show for 2021. And please stay tuned every Monday for the best of our year's work. And thank you tonight to 
Fiona Reynolds from the UNPRI, which is the Principle for Responsible Investment, from Melissa Kawara from Extinction Rebellion in Indonesia, Nancy Tembo, uh, Minister for Forestry in Malawi, from Rishi Sunak, Chancellor of the Exchequer from the UK. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's coal. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR.